I said, well, you know, maybe I'm just going to let it drift for a day or two, watch the market, start to realize what happened, and it'll probably push the stock up more and squeeze out a little more profit. Well, what did happen was that the company decided for no known reason other than to themselves that they should pre-announce earnings, in which case the stock dropped all the way right back down to where it was trading prior to the announcement. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Meb Faber. Meb, are you ready to rock? Let's do it, man. All right. So Meb is a co-founder and the chief investment officer of Cambria Investment Management and manages Cambria's ETFs and separate accounts. Meb is the host of the Meb Faber Show podcast and has authored numerous white papers and leather-bound books. He is a frequent speaker and writer on investment strategies and has been featured in Barron's, The New York Times, The New Yorker. Well, Meb graduated from University of Virginia with a double major in engineering science and biology, my goodness, and we just noticed that we had something in common. Our mothers are two North Carolina ladies. So, Meb, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Well, sad news, you said you're also a Cleveland guy, and I'm originally a Denver guy, so that means this was a tough weekend if you're a football fan. And we sort of had y'all's number for quite a while, remembering back to the Ernest Biner days for mm. students in history. But it's a tough year for both of us. We both have losing teams, so I don't know what I can say. Mm. Um, yeah, man, you know, I'm a, we run a quant-based asset manager here in Los Angeles. We manage about a billion in assets. If you're ever local, come say hello, listeners. It's meant to be rules-based. So I call myself a quant, but kind of a quant light to distinguish between what a lot of people, when they hear quant, they think high-frequency traders and people doing all sorts of really complicated Mathematical derivatives really just means we want to put our whole process into rules so that we avoid all the behavioral and emotional biases and seductions that get into our investing process. And hopefully that improves it in a way that makes it more repeatable. I'm just curious about that. Like, how does that work? I mean, many people studying finance, working in finance, think that there's no kind of formula that you've got to go out and visit a company and come up with a view and all that. I'm just curious about how did you come upon getting to this point and how does it work? That's, that sounds like so much work. That sounds I know. exhausting. <laughs> uh, you described it to be doing all that fundamental research. Look, the funny thing about investing is we can now rely on an enormous library and bench of prior art and work and most of the investing ideas and concepts it's nothing new if you look at value investing it's not like warren buffett invented it but rather even his mentor benjamin graham was practicing it well over 100 years ago before he even wrote the book security analysis and intelligent investor and so the nice part about the computer age is we can extract what a lot of simple investing approaches are there was actually a recent academic paper that looked at Buffett's investment style and turned it into a formula. And actually, the formula does a pretty darn good job of approximating what Warren Buffett's done over the past 30, 40 years. And it turns out, you know, his big value add, his big alpha, I would argue, is not the exact 
security selection because in many ways that could be turned into a rules-based algorithm. It's basically value investing with quality, sprinkling a little leverage. But his big alpha is that he sticks to his investing approach, the thick and thin, despite the periods of underperformance. And this is an interesting one right now for value. Last 10 years has been kind of tough for value-based strategies, but he sticks to it and really ignores the siren song of chasing other investing approaches which really tends to be the biggest deterrent and big anchor lead weight on a lot of people's investing plans is not having that sort of ballast or a sort of mission statement or mission plan philosophy that really keeps them on track. Mm. And we're going to get into the question in just a minute, but since most of my audience may not know you, it's just curious to understand a little bit more about what you're doing. And, and maybe I'll just ask one other question about that. There are some people that are listening who have developed some sort of systematic way of analyzing data, and some of them obviously very complex or very sophisticated, let's say, and other ones are people at home using data that they've got to build some sort of structure of the way that they invest. Let's just say that somebody's worked on that structure for a long time. They've done pretty well, but then there's this period of time where it just doesn't work. And I'm just curious, how does, and in this case, you know, like you said, I think you've given the answer probably with Buffett, but the question is, what does someone like yourself do when your methodology doesn't work? One answer to that is do nothing. Another one is tweak. So quite a bit here. The first piece of comment I'll make is that Assuming the investing strategy is built on a solid foundation. So is it something that makes sense? For example, value investing we reference. Hmm. Not is it something that it was totally data mined and spurious where you only buy stocks that start with the letter L if they're run by a male CEO and if he eats hamburgers. You know, that, that's not one that really probably will stand the test of time. But if you torture the data enough, you'll, you'll come up with all sorts of these anomalies that don't make a lot of sense. I used to tell people when friends, family, investors ask me, we have over 40,000 investors, so we get a lot of questions, but people would say, Meb, I invest in this fund or this asset class or strategy, man, you know, and it's had a tough few months or it's had a bad year, should I sell it? And I used to tell people, if you invest in an asset class or strategy, that you should give it 10 years. And I've actually changed my view on that over the years. And I actually now think the, the answer is 20. And people smile and laugh at me at that. And I, I say, well, let me give you an example. One of the most time honored foundations of all of investing is that stocks outperform bonds. And there's been books written on this. Everyone understands it, the reason why, and it does make sense. But there's been periods in the United States of decades, multiple decades in a row, uh, periods of 10, 20, 30, 40 years plus where stocks don't outperform bonds. And if you think about that for a second, unless maybe the millennials listening to this will live to 150 or 200, but 30, 40, 50 years, that's an investing lifetime. And if you can't count on stocks to outperform bonds, what can you count on when it comes down to actual, the way most people measure investments, weeks, quarters, years? And so what really matters, I think, is to become somewhat asset class agnostic so many of us want to become emotionally wedded to whether you're a gold bug guy or a crypto person or a dividend investor or 
whatever it may be, realize that every asset, class, sector, industry, and even investing style has its moment in the sun and times when it's just absolutely atrocious. And so trying to become a bit more logical and rational about understanding that a lot of these investing approaches and Buffett is a good one because back to 2000, if you invested in his stocks, he would have outperformed like 99% of all mutual funds, 2000 to today. He beat the stock market by about four percentage points per year, which is a massive, massive amount. However, he's underperformed something like eight of the last 10 years. And if you didn't say his name was Buffett, but just said it was Meb or some other portfolio manager off the street, and you underperform one year, you're grumpy, clients are grumpy. Two years in a row, forget about it. Three years out of four, no, that person's out of business. They have been fired. Eight out of 10. Mm. But that's what it takes. These cycles play out over such long periods. And the reason why is the regime sets the stage for the next sort of decade. You know, one more example real quick would be as we're finishing this decade, less than 60 days left, creeping up on us. And you look back, U.S. stocks have trounced just about everything else. And so, so many people here domestically in the U.S. extrapolate. So U.S. stocks forever, that's the best asset class. But very quickly, they forget that the prior decade, U.S. stocks was one of the worst. Mm. And so having a very long-term perspective, I think, is absolutely essential and much longer than most people think when they think of long-term perspective. Wow. It reminds me of a man who really inspired me, a guy named Dr. Deming, who uh, was really the father of the quality movement. And uh, I listened to him speak at one seminar and somebody asked him, you know, Dr. Deming, you're talking about transforming the way management of a company is done. And, you know, and, you know, how long does it take to transform, you know, and Dr. Deming looked at them and he says, I've seen it done in as little as 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's thinking in a much longer time frame, as, as you say, as long as there's a good foundation. And I guess the message for the listeners to take away or that I'm taking away is, you know, obviously a quality systematic way of doing things, but the discipline to stay with it in down times. And I guess your example of Buffett underperforming in eight of the last 10 years is clearly, as you said, if his name wasn't Buffett, people would have run. But because his name is Buffett, it's like they're investing in his iron discipline. Yeah, that and most people that have been investing with Buffett probably are multiple millionaires by now. So they're probably it doesn't matter. And it's not, a, it's not, you know, but Charlie Munger, his partner, he often says too, he says, you know, if you can't handle 50% declines in quoted securities, you shouldn't be investing in the market. And a lot of people, you know, when they think about risk and challenges, an another good example would be the media loves to talk about the narrative of what would have happened had you just invested 10,000 in Amazon's IPO. And the result is something like your, that 10,000 is now, I don't know, 10 million or hundred million, something just, you know, astronomical. But the challenge is no one would have done that because Amazon declined over 90% multiple times. And how many people can hold on to an investment when your account goes down by 90% multiple times, it's, you kind of have to be a psychopath or have forgotten about it or put it in an account that no one knows about. So that's what makes this investing world so challenging, fun, exciting, but also just really, really hard to yep. 
comply with. Yep. Well, that's a great you know background on your thinking, and I think for the listeners out there, you should definitely subscribe and listen to the Med Favor Show because I listen to it on every episode, and particularly like some of the the ones that you're doing on uh, the best investment writing, where you're inviting people on to read a chapter of something or to read an, an article or something that they've written. That's really, I love that. I love that one. So that well done with the, with the podcast. Thank you. Yep. All right. Well, enough of that fun talk. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. You know, like many investors, when you're young, you are full of spit and vigor and overconfidence and belief that you're the best investor on the planet. And I think, you know, this is a natural evolution that I I don't know that it's required, but it is hugely beneficial. And we love to tell people the best thing that can happen to you as a young investor is you lose all your money. Hopefully it's not much money, but you go through the very real pain of physical pain of losing money and it becomes absolutely crippling and devastating if it happens later in life when you maybe say have a family or dependents or can't afford to make these mistakes but certainly making it with small amounts of money i think is a wonderful teacher and so you know i was a biotech engineering guy by background but also interested in investing in stocks and so coming out of university in the late 90s there were two great dual bubbles there was the market cap weighted us stock bubble so uh, heavily dominated by tech and IT companies like Cisco. And it was a, such a fun bubble. It was exciting. But U.S. stocks got to be the most expensive they've ever been in history. Not all of them. Small caps and dividend payers, real estate, all were neglected. Buffett famously hugely neglected his ideas. All the magazine covers said, has this old man lost it? He underperformed the NASDAQ, I think, in one year by something like 150 percentage points. And... So it was a wild time. It makes crypto look basic, I think, at this point, but a pretty wild time to be investing. But also, biotech was a big draw. The human genome was getting sequenced by the government as well as Solera. And so biotech stocks were going crazy too. And as I graduated college, I mean, it's hard to relate to people, but we had professors that would be you know, in class trading stocks and talking about how much money they were making and in their investments and really just a crazy mania at the time. And I went to go work as a biotech equity analyst out of college with the goal of eventually going back to grad school. So it had take a, a bit of a break for a year or two to try to make some money and, and did go to grad school at night, but not the full career that I expected and was sort of bitten and seduced by the investing markets and financial markets bug, but certainly traded a lot on my own and had a fair amount of success and doing a lot of what you would call fundamental analysis. And at one point had identified a security, and I believe it was Biogen, which is still around today. And Biogen, this would have been in the early 2000s, had a big, if if you follow biotech and pharma stocks, they are extremely volatile. And often cases, unless it's a, a monster like Pfizer, will have these binary events where they say have a drug it's either going to get approved or not, in which case the shares will go up 100% or down 80. You know, the, the whole company is leveraged to one outcome. And so 
that creates a lot of opportunity and volatility. And I had identified a situation where that was, it's always important to understand if you're trading or investing and you're trying to beat the market to understand the base case of what is known. So everyone knew there was a date in the future where this stock, where the company would announce whether the drug was approved or not. So that's well known. What I just decided at the time, and you'll see in a second, that you combine ideas with leverage and options, and this is usually (laughs) probably on the laundry list of biggest mistakes people make. I think old Buffett and Charlie, I forget which one of them said it, says that the biggest things that blow up people's careers in investing is liquors, ladies, and leverage. That's a little outdated, so it's it's not a totally men-dominated world, but leverage being the one that I think drags a lot of people out. So anyway, identified the security and there was an event happening. And my belief was that the drug was not going to get approved. However, I said, I want to be balanced and build a trade so that, and the off chance it does get approved, I don't lose all my money, or I don't lose any money, hopefully make money either way. And so there's an options position you can put on. And I can't remember if it was a straddle or a strangle. But what that meant is you would buy both puts and calls with the understanding that there would be a very large market move. And I had, you know, only maybe two, three weeks to expiration. So you could buy a lot of these and get an extreme amount of leverage and had built it in a way that if it did not get approved, I would make an enormous amount of money. If it did get approved, I would probably break even. And what was intelligent about this trade is also realize that a lot of uncertainty handicapping whether this is going to get approved or not by portfolio managers all around the world. So realized a lot of these portfolio managers would not want to place this bet on the roulette table where it was maybe a 50-50 split, but they would hedge their position by also buying options. So what happened with the options, by the time the date came around, was that the options had doubled in value because the volatility had increased. So a reasonable trader may have taken off a half, a quarter of the position as it was already making money, you double your money, you could have sold the entire thing and been done with it, not even had to wait for the event to happen. But like I said, I was certainly overconfident in the belief that I wanted to make tons of money. No big interest in making a little money. And so of course, what happened, the drug actually got approved. And what I predicted to happen would happen, which was my position would break even, but not make a ton of money. And the correct thing to do at that point same thing with any plan where you have the plan ahead of time is you follow the plan. And once the trade was over, you exit and move on. Well, I said, well, you know, maybe I'm just going to let it drift for a day or two, watch the market start to realize what happened. And it'll probably push the stock up more and squeeze out a little more profit. Well, what did happen was that the company decided for no known reason other than to themselves that they should pre-announce earnings, in which case the stock dropped all the way right back down to where it was trading prior to the announcement. And for the option traders out there, they understand that that all of a sudden made both sides of my position completely worthless. So instead of not making a fair amount of money before the trade, before the announcement, or making a little bit of money after the trade, I actually ended up not only not making money, but losing all of my money. And so after that happened, I was astonished, stunned, totally surprised, eating mustard sandwiches for probably a year, 
but it taught a lot of lessons. It taught one, there's no point in putting on such a massive leverage trade in size to where the biggest takeaway in all of investing is you want to live to bet another day. And if your bankroll gets taken away, you can't bet. You're done. You're finished with the game. So position sizing is really important and leverage. Second was that once, if you're going to place a trade or come up with a plan, account for all the possible outcomes, which mm -hmm. I did not. And two, once it plays out to follow your original script, which I did not. So there's all sorts of other things, but the biggest to me was the very real pain, embarrassment, everything involved with losing money and feeling shame and stupidity and all the challenges of then wanting that to never happen again, right? For the people that can relate to this, that's something that's hard to teach. So telling people, hey, at some point you're going to lose all this money and this, that, and the other, that's a lot different than what it actually does. Mm. So that's as best I can remember it. That was, thank you for bringing back this really painful moment in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we specialized yeah. in here at my worst investment ever. It was interesting because you started off, maybe I'll add in some of the things that I took away from it. You know, the first thing that you said at the beginning of your discussion of it was you referenced physical pain, which I just put a note down there. And then you obviously went through the physical and emotional pain. And I think, you know, Jason Zweig's book, the, uh, Your Money and Your Brain, was a real wake-up call for me to really realize that investing is a contact sport. It is a physical sport because every single thing that's happening in investing is having an emotional and, and a neurological impact, and those manifest themselves in your physical body. And so it kind of reminded me the, the point that it is a physical game and that's also teaches the idea of the discipline of having a structured way of looking at things and having a plan and 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 that's of course the second part about what you talked about is having a plan and sticking with it it really is you know a very hard thing to do it seems like it would be pretty simple i made this plan and you know things went well, according to plan, and now I'm going to close it out or things went poorly. Now I'm going to close it out. But oftentimes, you know, in, in one of the investment strategies that we do, people ask, what do you do if we set stop losses on some stocks, particularly in Asia, where the volatility can be really high and we just may not be able to capture what's going on in that stock. So if it falls by X amount, we may execute a stop loss. And then someone asked the question, you know, what do you do with the cash? And I always say that just because we were forced to sell does not mean that we should be forced to buy. So like the idea of a trade coming to an end, it doesn't mean that you have to then immediately execute another trade. And I think that's an important lesson that, that I take away from it. I think the third thing that I would reference about this story is, you know, also related to scams. And in Asia, we have so many scams related. You rarely hear people talk about scams about, you know, an ETF strategy. You rarely hear people talk about scams about, you know, picking stocks using fundamentals or something. What you almost always hear scams about is options, you know, and also foreign exchange trading and that type of thing. And I think that, you know, 
what you explain is a very thoughtful option strategy. But also remember that, you know, for the average listener out there, options can be very complex and, you know, they can unravel in a way that can lose all of your money. And I think that a lot of people don't realize that. So I just want to highlight because some of our stories are particularly scams where people got sucked into some idea that they were going to make a lot of money from some complex strategy. That's usually the biggest tell is the make a lot of money part. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> we, we, we've done a lot of articles that talk about just how hard it is to compound your money at these large numbers for a long period. And if you're like Buffett, you know, Buffett's compounded at 20% a year. But if you do that long enough, you eventually become one of the richest people on the planet. And so a lot of the scams, by definition, are almost always promising these just massive, massive returns. And, and then those just aren't that attainable. You know, I'll make one comment earlier on what you mentioned as having a plan. And the best way to, I think, compare this to where people can relate is thinking about something like diet. You know, if you don't have a plan and just want to eat pizza and cookies every day and go to the fridge whenever you feel like it, you're going to end up being really unhappy and unhealthy. The next best step would be to have a plan, right? Say, hey, look, I'm going to eat. This is what I eat. I'm going to eat mostly vegetarian diet and healthy, whatever your keto. I don't even care. I'm just saying you have a plan. Next would be you share it with someone who keeps you accountable. So maybe it's your spouse or children or neighbor so that, you know, all of a sudden they watch you eating a piece of cake and they're like, hold on, you know, you said only cake on Sundays, whatever it may be. And then lastly, is setting up a system to help ensure success and compliance. So if you have a diet that says, I'm not going to eat cake, but have cake in your refrigerator and pantry, well, that's just really stupid. But if you say, look, I'm only going to eat it when we're at restaurants, on special occasions, whatever it may be, it's the same thing with investing. You know, I think a lot of people that either automate or have a plan, whatever the plan may be, have a written investing statement, policy portfolio plan. Almost 99% of investors we talk to don't. And it doesn't have to be complicated. It could be very simple. But having something written down so that when it hits the fan in the future, you can reference it and say, oh yeah, this is what I said I was going to do, whatever it may be. And then ideally sharing it with someone. So let's mm -hmm. say you're married and have a spouse and you have this plan and one of you is freaking out because the world's ending or stocks are down or inflation's up, whatever, maybe currencies. We say, oh no, no, remember, look, here's our plan. This is what we had set out to do. These are our goals. And the automation is a nice nudge where it's like you don't have the cake in the fridge and all of this works together to try to come up with a structure and framework that ensures success. But the way that most people do it is they're, they like to gamble. They, and if they don't say they like to gamble, they really do secretly and they just want to play it by ear. And that's a really, really problematic idea when it comes to investing. And, and one of these reasons, going back to the original trade, is that's why I'm a quant, is I want rules that'll tell me Hey, hey, no, here's some, here's some guardrails for what you should be doing to keep you uh, hopefully in compliance with the, the goal you want to achieve, whatever mm. that may be. Yep. And I would add into that whole discussion that you just made is, you know, I'm sure a lot of that is coming from old learning, but also a lot of new learning related to habits. We've seen books like Charles Durig's The Power of Habit. We've seen, I think it was James Clear that wrote uh, Atomic Habits. 
But for the listeners out there, if you're having, you know, ultimately executing a plan comes down to building habits oftentimes. And I use something, you know, that I, I've learned from those things, which is the concept of kind of that a habit is a structure that you have. And, you know, that structure could be a, it is a structure that happens at a regular time. What is inside there, the actual habit of what you do can be replaced or it could be stacked on. So if you have one habit, so for instance, I have something I like to do early in the morning, which is planning my day. And I, my goal is to set the habit of doing it with my morning coffee. And the benefit of that is that I'm stacking it, you know, and connecting it with an existing habit. Yeah. So that, that is a huge thing. And, but I think that, you know, the sharing it, I also use an app called Habit Share. And Habit Share is the only habit app that I've been able to find where I can invite friends and we have our habits set up and every day we tick whether we did it or not and we see each other's progress. So like that it. helps habit share. That helps. So based upon what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And I'd like to go right to that specific, you know, trade and think about for those people that are, you know, in the process of putting on that trade right now, somewhere around the world, what one piece of advice would you give them? Well, here's a good example is we talked about this concept of a zero budget portfolio, and it's actually born out of a company and business ideas with a way to structure a company. And I think it applies to personal finance and then to your portfolio, which is, you know, as the year winds down, as the decade winds down, think about this, you know, as you look at all your expenses, most people, the way they approach expenses is they review them on occasion say, oh, TV is a hundred bucks a month. You know, that's kind of a lot. Oh, here's my audible. I haven't listened to that in a while. That not either. When in reality, if you said, okay, starting Jan one, I'm going to start from a blank slate and actually say, what would I add if I didn't own it? And that's a little more of an esoteric example, but try with your personal finances. And the one that most people really relate to is you say, okay, walk into your closet or your garage and just look at all that crap sitting there and say, if I didn't own all this stuff in the garage, would I go buy it? Absolutely not. You'd be crazy to go buy all that junk. Same thing with your closet. These old clothes say, if I didn't own this, would I go spend 50, 100, whatever on this shirt or these shoes? And the answer is almost always no. And the reason being is we develop an emotional attachment to things we own that is different than if we didn't own them. And so a portfolio is a good example. The vast majority of people, when you say, what's in your portfolio, how do you invest? It's a random assortment of patchwork cobbled together investments that they've bought and sold and now own over the past one, five, 10, 20 years. The average financial advisor that's been in 20, been in business for 20 years in the US owns something like 200 mutual funds for his clients. And so if I was to say, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. Sell all of it tonight and take out a white piece of paper and write down what your ideal investment portfolio looks like. And if the two are different, there's a problem, right? There's a mismatch somewhere. And we're ignoring taxes right now, but almost always that's a minority effect on what we're talking about. And often people make tax decisions that end up being worse than had they not thought about taxes. And so that's a good example of another behavioral bias with it that people have that causes them to put together solutions that are not what they want or not optimal. 
And again, it goes back to not having a plan. So it's kind of two peas in a pod. One, have a plan, write it down, share it with someone, but also actually implement it. And that's where a lot of people, the breakage occurs is they actually don't do anything (laughs) or change anything. I'm like one of the only people on the planet probably that vast majority of my net worth is only invested in one fund because that works for me. It's simple and it's a lot easier for me. Some people it's automated. Some people it's just rebalancing once a year, whatever. But to have a situation that it's actually what you really do want, as opposed to just what you've put together. We used to call this mutual fund salad. You know, you just have this mess of investments that a lot of people, they have 30, 60, 80 holdings. They have no idea what the actual, the, the sum total looks like. So mm. it's a good time to reflect year in, decade in, clean house, get rid of all the old stuff and uh, get your house in order for, for the future. Great, great advice. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? I'll start with one and then slightly a joke and then continue. Um, (laughs) I think the biggest compliment you can give anyone in our business, but also this applies to entrepreneurship, companies, as well as just life, is to to simply survive. Uh, As you look back in in time on, on the asset management world, you know, just staying in the game, I think is important, showing up and, and doing the work we want to do. You know, as far as personally and in work, I'm a big skier. You know, I mentioned I was in, in, grew up partially in Colorado. So there's a couple new spots that I would love to try out. I've been over for the past few years in your part of the world to ski in Japan, which is such a world-class destination and culture and people. It's been a lot of fun. So there's a few new places I'd like to try out in the U.S., that's a big one. And then, of course, on the, on the work side, yeah, I said survive and, and grow the business and enjoy it, uh, mm. same, as, same as we always do. And for those people out there that are thinking about their survival and they're facing a tough, they've had a tough year or they're struggling, one of the best ways that I get myself motivated to survive is to watch the Ollie Frazier fights. <laughs> and if you ever get a chance to watch those on YouTube, I think it was the second one where Ali in the 15th round basically said he was the closest to death that he ever came. And oh yet, you know, I mean, it was just amazing. But that fight and the, it's a lot of times my business partner in my coffee business, Dale, often says business is like a boxing match, you know, and some rounds you just cover up and don't get knocked out. You Mm. cannot be on the offensive on every single round. And then he likes to add in. And in the old days, it was 75 round bare knuckle brawl, you know. (laughs) So good advice and good goals in place. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of lost to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Meb, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, physically painful, as you mentioned, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Yeah, you know, we put out a ton of content. Y'all are welcome to, I think, almost all of our books are free now to download. So go take them for a gander and love to chat about all this crazy investing markets that we participate in as well. So if anybody, feel free to give me a shout anytime or say hello if uh, you're local in the neighborhood. Fantastic. And for the listeners out there, I would also say, you know, go to the website. I'll put links on the show notes, but get the book Global Asset Allocation, a survey of the world's top asset allocation strategies, because it's a simple, clear and effective discussion of asset allocation. So I highly recommended that. 
Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.